0: My guest today is jack gray many of you probably would know jack from his previous roles at gmo as the co-head of asset allocation the cio of sun super uh, an executive director at amp asset management and as a adjunct professor at university technology sydney jack welcome to the podcast and
1: and director of brookvine too
0: oh yes there's many things that you're doing i know you're semi-retired but you're still very much um involved you know how do you think about super funds and whether super funds really are sort of set up to deliver true long term performance
1: uh, the hardest question first of course and the question that doesn't can never have a, a, a particularly strong and convincing a- answer but on average i think they are uh, on average uh, they tend to think that way of uh, the long term i think on average uh, the industry is now sufficiently aware to know that uh, the difference between long term and short term, and how in the long term, seven, ten years, there is some slight degree of predictability of the way markets work. There is an understanding of why equities in a well functioning economy uh, you would expect them to outperform by a certain margin usually not the margin that people hope for but margin Um, that short term on the other hand uh, it's a bit of a mugs game Uh, no one can predict what markets going to do in the next year or even three years it's uh, it's throwing that's why the throwing darts at uh, at a board is better over one year than anything else so i think they they are geared towards that and they've set themselves up. They tend to think that way. Doesn't mean they're always true to that. And, of course, the long-term always has the problem that the short-term can screw up the long-term. You can't You can't be a... There, there's a misconception, I don't think the, the super funds have, that uh, the long-term, whenever anyone talks about the long-term and extols his virtues, they're really saying, buy and hold and just sit there. Well, that can't be right either. Uh, you, the short term, as we've seen just recently with COVID, the short term can really play enormous havoc with the long term. So, the real challenge is to be a long-term investor, understand why the long term does work better than the short term. On the other hand, occasionally, the short term is going to get in the way and you may need to do things. Mm-hmm. The there there is a tendency of course to do too much there is a part of being a long-term investor is recognizing the incredible virtue of uh, of inertia that doing nothing is sometimes the best thing to do particularly when we are mixed with messed with massive uncertainty so all those issues play roles that make it a very hard thing to do good governments also talk about long-term, and they also, the good ones, do tend to think that way and do take actions accordingly, but they too get screwed up by the short-term from time to time. So that's the really difficult balance that you have to strike, but they are, when you think of what sort of asset classes should do better over longer periods of time, equity stands out, of course and they tend to have a bias towards equities, which is generally healthy, but sometimes that bias is, uh, is a bias driven by the agency cost. Uh, we are doing it because it's more interesting, it's more exciting. Uh, but by and large, yeah, they've, they've gone into, I think they've invested uh, well in that sense and have done reasonably well. Mm-hmm. You can always say, well, they've done well because the markets have done well, and that's true. But they were there uh, when you think of the way the super funds started in capital guaranteed, and then they moved into the markets, and then they moved the big industry funds, were one of the first to move offshore in a meaningful way once that was allowed, uh, first to go into infrastructure, uh, all long term things that they. I think they uh, have done well.
0: Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you around sort of the long-term performance and investing is, you know, there are some big big structural changes that seem to be happening with the markets. We've we've ended a 40-year, you know, downward trajectory in interest rates, you know, globalization sort of heat heat to peak level, you know, this this windfall that equities have have been able to sustain, you know, and a lot of other real assets as well through this period yeah you know, I guess that's one of the questions that I wanted to sort of ask you in terms of as we think about long-term performance, has you know the best years that we've seen from super sort of is that coming to an end given the broader backdrop?
1: Uh, again another another question that everyone's got a got a view on of going back in history, uh, which I always do, you you find that 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 has been. We have not been very good at forecasting the end of things and we have not been very good at forecasting the beginning of things. We humans are simply not very good at doing that. And there's always surprises. And that, and it's because of that, the the massive uncertainty of the future, which is intrinsic to the future, of course, is the argument for diversifying, that for having some uh, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a few things, and that works. And that's probably the best bet. To make a big bet in a certain way like that, uh, on the future, is uh, is is a, a dangerous thing to do. Uh, when I was at GMO in the late nineties, two thousand, when the tech bubble was going, we had formed the view that this was uh, nonsense. It was going to end. Uh, our prediction on what the next 10-year forecast for equities was going to be was something like minus 7 real, and we were much too optimistic. We pulled it back because we didn't think anyone would believe it. We were an, in a sort of balanced-type portfolio, diversified portfolio, where the benchmark might have been, from memory, 50, 55% equities. We were thirty or forty percent underweight, which in America you, to be underweight American equities was a meant you were anti-American, which didn't bother me because I am, but it bothered some others. And we so we were holding this small position on equities, and we went away. Three of us went away for one full day to argue the case of if we really believe. That this market is going to crumble and we had good reason for believing that Uh, reversion to fair value which we were leaders in now everybody talks that way but we were really the first ones leading that and we understood how reversion to the mean actually works probably better than most and that was that gave us the sort of theoretical underpinnings for why we believed this market was going to crumble and so the question was, well, if you really believe that, why are you still holding, say, 20% equities? Why aren't you at zero? And why aren't you shorting the equities? And we went away and thrashed that, and we decided, we, yeah, we were very confident that this was going to happen. Of course, we didn't know when. We were going very confident it was going to happen. But we weren't that confident. There were enough arguments on the other side to disturb us and make us worry. And again, that was part of the diversification argument. That's the, the big question, of course, of how you size a bet. Is um, There ain't no science in that. Well, it's a bit, but it's mainly trying to come to terms with how confident are you and how confident should you be and why aren't you more confident. And generally, looking at the world in the future, I don't think anyone can have much confidence in any direction on that. So, hence, you've got to diversify things. You've got to do do a bunch of things to hedge that. And there will be some who take huge bets. Uh, there's a, there's a hedge, for hedge fund in in London uh, that has been underweight. Uh, it's been taking enormous bets against uh, the market up until the beginning of this year. They were down 70%, 80%. Uh, they've probably made some of that up. But you go out of business. You know there was there was a Hopkins, I think his name was, in some time in uh, in the late 80s, a manager in Melbourne, and he was so sure that markets going to crumble, he put everything in cash, and they didn't crumble at the right time, and he's out of business. So a super fund really cannot afford to do that, and therefore, no matter what you see of the future, you have to diversify. You have to hedge those bets because you'll never be that confident. I don't know what's what's going to happen and all sorts when you look back in history, it's always a surprise.
0: One of the questions that you know keeps coming up um around sort of super funds is that you know they implicitly need to have this sort of a bullishness about markets, right? Because there's you you've sort of just touched on in your conversation there, which is this um, business premise that they need to manage alongside the investment pre- premise, and you've just sort of yeah. given the example with an investment fund. But the same approach would be you know, applied to a super fund as well. Is that fair yeah. to say?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think so. They've got to they've got to have some sort of view on it. And I'm not saying that because the the uh, future is so uncertain and so surprising that you don't have a view on it. You do need to have that, but you've got to be quite cautious about it. And, uh, and that's part of the skill. It's part of the skill of running a business. You're, you're making a bet on the future, and you want to be able to not put everything all at once on that and have a sort of diversified portfolio in your business. That's so why single-line single businesses, of course, are more vulnerable to really bad downturns. On the other hand, a single-line businesses have got uh, a huge advantage in simplicity. And interesting on, on that, a GMO we are, as a business, and that's you know, one of the things about investing is that there's an internal trade-off between running the shop as a, as investment professionals do and running it as a business. It's not unlike uh, making movies or theatre. or even writing a novel. Uh, In the movies, you would like to believe that it's an artistic creation and you want to give the artistic people, the directors and the actors and the others, a whole lot of free reign because they're the ones who understand how to make, how to create art. On the other hand, uh, it's a business. They want to get paid. And so you've got to worry about what's going to make money. And if you look at Hollywood, hollywood cares nothing about the artistic side of things it's just the business and the quality of what they produce is such crap that you can you see it on the other hand there are people like say woody allen who emphasize the artistic side more uh, and are less concerned about the business side but even he has to do that same in investing are you there as investment professionals and therefore you will do the right thing that you believe is right for your clients and the investors, or do you knuckle down and say, "Look, we've got to do something that keeps us in business and that makes us money," and that may not be the right thing to do, and and that's uh, that's an eternal uh, problem. So when go when I go back to GMO, GMO, we had as a business we had a lot of different strategies. Uh, you, you name it, we had it, pretty much. And the idea, the business idea behind that was that there was something to sell, no matter what happened. It's, a, it's an age-old strategy. The, the big guys always do that, not that we were big. Uh, and I, I, I enjoyed that because uh, the trap is that it's much more interesting and even exciting. Well, that means I'm not really thinking about the, the long-term investor the client, I'm thinking more about the agency problem, about me, what I want to do, because it's interesting. On the other hand, you went to, and I spent some time with Arrow Street, another quant manager in Boston. Uh, Both, each of us had respect for the other, quite a different investment way of approaching things than GMO. And from a business perspective, they had decided they wanted a tiny, small number of products small number of strategies. Uh, you know at the time I think they had three they had a couple of equity strategies and oh, three equity strategies that was it. and the advantage of that, the disadvantage if you're a salesman not that I was, was you can't you know you can't you go in and they don't like what you've got you can't reach into your back pocket and say boy have I got something for you That's it. On the other hand, as running it as a business it was much simpler and cleaner and easier to manage and to lead. And so there's that sort of that sort of thing is, a, is an issue that that strikes at the heart of what I'm saying about investors the, being an investment professional and at the same time being a profit-making business. It, it's tough and the, the super funds even though they're not for profit, they have to worry about that too, of course.
0: Genuinely worried about their relative performance, right? That that's a that's yep. part of these heat maps. It's part of these yep. league yep. tables. Yeah. But if we compare that piece, you know, that re- relative performance versus maybe some of the great investors um, historically, it, it seems that there's a bit of a disconnect. Some of the great, you know, investors have some very much fundamentally um, driven philosophies that they want to invest truly for the long term, and this whole relative performance is really what they would see as a fool's game. They're truly in you know these particular investments for for very large amounts of time they take they would also i would say take some more concentrated bets you know is there a bit of a disconnect between sort of the business angle the relative performance versus then the the true great investors uh, of of our time
1: yeah yeah very much so that uh, that is a problem for them because they they worry obsessively about relative performance and interestingly their clients don't give a damn you, there's, there's, I don't think there's any individual member who worries about that, nor are there individual companies who are putting money into SIBA uh, as from a company perspective, worried about it. Uh, it. it is what it what it does do is it uh, makes sure that you're safe as a business. You you know the old one that used to be said about IBM: you don't get fired for hiring IBM. It, if everyone is the same, and they are, the super funds are pretty much all the same. They have different colored brochures, and that's really about it. There's not much difference between them, like the big banks. The big banks, they don't really compete. They, they, they copy each other, and they have different colored brochures, but there's no competition there and competition is a furphy. It's, it's, we're in a business or, and an industry where competition is really a, a pointless thing to worry about because competition works brilliantly with something like uh, umbrellas, right? Umbrellas, you, you don't want anything but pure competition with umbrellas. I sell umbrellas. You sell umbrellas. The client comes along it's pretty easy to tell whether the umbrella is going to work or not you can even test it so you can test quality and therefore once you can test quality you can decide whether the one that's charging more is actually better quality and make a rational decision in this business you can't you don't know you know you don't know what is quality in in an investment management strategy or in a super fund there's no way of knowing that it's the same with health insurance you, to, to imagine that price determines quality in health insurance is absurd. I don't, I've got no idea what sort of health insurance I need, nor will I ever have. And it's a nonsense to do that. And that's why I think the idea of having one or maybe two big super funds, Although, interestingly, well, Peter Costello is advocating that, although the future fund is the wrong place to do it. That's a much better way to go. You have, a, you have a sort of national super fund, two, two moves away from government, so the government appoints a body, an independent body, and that body then appoints the independent people running it. And that's the way it's going to end up with a lot of countries. Uh, the, the Canadians have got the big uh, Canadian pension plan, and eventually that will be the, the fund that people go into. And it's performance, the competition is, is meaningless. It just means that you end up copying everybody else. So well, why have so many then? Uh, it's crazy. And, and the cost is enormous. Because, and, of course, everyone, when you talk to super funds, of course, they're all terrific. Well, we all say that about ourselves. And when you talk about their boards, oh, we've got a terrific board. It might have 37 people on it, but it's a terrific board. They are the super funds, although they have done the, the industry funds have done a hell of a lot better than the, than the for profits, and they always will. Uh, they've still got their problems that they don't want to address, and that's one of them. And the relative performance is, is it's, it's a meaningless thing, but you can see when I was a CIO, that was the board, was, that was always the first thing they wanted to know. There were two questions. How have we done relative to uh, OzSuper or somebody? Who cares? Would would have been my answer. And then the second one is uh, what happened in the market today. And there, I did say I neither know nor care. And you know, asking the right questions is a is a key thing for these funds. And it's not clear that they do. But anyway, they've gone the relative performance. Yeah, it's 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 a really empty thing. And yet to break it, and the whole industry is geared towards promoting it. So that's, there's a real problem there. I don't know how you get away from that sort of thing.
0: You've raised a whole range of issues there around sort of, you know, the a more of a, a national style fund or one or two major super funds. Is that really because you see the competition as being, a, a, you know, you sort of describe it as a furphy and that you'd actually get better benefits from costs and allocation of capital um, oh. from the system?
1: I, I think so. I think so. You, you'd get rid of this relative performance thing, so the investment, the, the 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 purer ideas of investment would come through. But you also get rid of a hell of a lot of uh, extra baggage. I mean, do we really need all these people? Do we really need? I don't know how many funds we've got at the moment, but still, not nothing like we used to. Uh, are they really adding value? Uh, some maybe, but then they get swamped by the size of things, and and, and it just it, you know the the, uh, the number of people involved and the cost of holding all those people, is uh, is a waste. It really is. Uh, the the banks, at least there are only four big major banks. You could argue that you probably only need two. There are a bunch of other ones. I don't know what they do, really. They say they're special. One one of the things is you could be more specialised. You don't need all these if they're all the same. So, is there a way for these funds to to distinguish themselves, to specialise in some way? Well, the smaller funds could do that. Smaller funds are in a position of saying we are not going to be like them. That's got a business risk associated with it. But, boy, there are some advantages in being a smaller fund. If you and there should be some, and and this this absurdity that you've got to be large uh, is it it denies the fact that scale uh, so there are adva- obvious advantages in scale and there are obvious disadvantages, and the people who argue for like the regulators uh, seem to ignore the obvious disadvantages of scale, of complexity, for instance. So I think there's a scope for a bit more specialisation amongst super funds, uh, having some small ones.
0: You know, is having the small funds really sort of critical to sort of maybe tailoring these funds to their members? You know, that's sort of been always the discussion around sort of the, the media supers yeah. of the world and they feel that they understand their members, they understand their industry, and there's that broader connection. Is that sort of what yeah, you're talking that, about?
1: Well, that's, yeah, but that's another fur for you. you know, most members quite intelligently don't are not interested in this and I say it's intelligent. It's not people don't understand super, and it's not because they're dumb. It's because they're smart. Uh, what do you want to know about? Why would you want to know much about super? Do you trust the system to actually do what it's meant to do? By and large, yeah. And what are you going to do about it? There's nothing you can do about it. It's it's uh, engagement is really an empty thing. This is something. You're dealing with your your retirement money 30, 40 years in the future. It's all automatic. Uh, there is no, why, what are you engaged for? I've never understood that. I personally uh, never look at my super account. It's, what am I going to do when I look at it? Oh, it's up. Oh, good. It's down. Oh, that's not too good. Uh, what's the point? And so I don't, until you get closer to retirement, of course, so, I don't think this idea of being close to them really adds much at all. Uh, you're not going to get much. No, I think the the size, the small size, has just got the advantages of being able to do different things and capitalise on investments when when smallness is is an advantage. Uh, that, for instance, a lot of a lot of private equity is relatively small, and so the big guys. Can't really do much there because they'll just swamp it, uh, so that the small guys can take that advantage. Mm-hmm. So no, I, I think I don't. I don't see being close to members. I've not understood what it is. The banks all say that. Of course, everyone in business says that. Uh, and how many are believable? So there's a lot of, like any any industry. There's a lot of there's a lot of crap about it. That I guess people. Are, some people believe and most of us probably understand that it's part of the part of the bullshit that goes with any organization unfortunately
0: Let, let's come back to one of the the conversations that you or you meant questions that you asked around sort of being at sun super and, and the board questions and and asking the right questions what what does that mean to you and i guess what what are the right questions that boards should be asking i
1: i think that's one of the key things for boards and that's true whether it's uh whether it's uh, in in super or any other industry, to actually, particularly when you're dealing as most boards do, they are non-experts dealing with experts. It's the same with uh, with government, uh, which is a which offers a good analogy. How does a a minister who is not an expert how does a minister get the best out of his expert civil servants and advisors? That's a it's a really it's a tough question. I don't think it's a question that's been asked enough. Of uh, some people can do it well. I think. I think Keating eventually did. When he first became treasurer, uh, he really literally knew nothing about the economy, but he learned quickly and he learned how to get the best. I think, out of the advice boards. Don't on the investment side they don't know what questions to ask. I once had a, a board that asked me that, said, can you come in and lead a discussion around what questions we should ask our internal investment staff? I think that's that's a great question. That how should we how should we query them? And what happened was exactly what happens with all these boards. Uh, I went in and they said they'd give me, you know, an hour and then an hour over lunch where we could discuss more. And, and you go in and they say, oh, "I'm sorry, you've got 20 minutes because something urgent's come up." Now that indicates, and that's before I started, so it wasn't a reflection on how inadequately I did it. That is so typical that they are they are so concerned with the short term questions that have immediate answers. That's what boards tend to want, or the people who are put on boards. They want short, snappy, quick answers. And that is not the way to understand what's going on and therefore really direct it, which is what you're there to do. Somehow, as as a non-expert, direct the experts. And there are people who can do that. It's rare, but there are people who can do that and I don't think we know enough about how to do it. So the, the question that boards always ask, how's relative performance? Forget it. Uh, you know, one of the things I did at Sunsuper way back when, they used to ask that question all the time, and I said, what's happened in the last month is irrelevant. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll set it up Though in those days on, a I think it was email or something, I'll set it up so that you, as directors, can go in at any time and see what the relative performance is. Uh, All you have to do is click a few buttons and I made sure they could do it. And they never did. And that really tells you something. So why do they ask that question at the board? They were not interested in it. But once you're at the board, they feel there's the camaraderie around a board. There's always, in any grouping, uh, there's the issue of I'm going to show off in front of somebody else. That's true of all organisations, but they're the wrong questions. And what the right questions are? Well, that's the really big question. But it's certainly not what did the what did the market do today? That that is dreadful. Um, there, there are, but not all the boards are like that. Of course, some are better than others. I think those, those are governance issues that they probably don't spend enough time on and they don't give enough time within the board meeting. And Another one that I had a lot of experience with was investment beliefs. And to me, that's a critical thing to start off with, to actually think through, work through and develop what your beliefs are and to then, on, in an ongoing way, Make sure that that's what you're doing or changing, rarely if necessary. The, uh, the uh, CPP is the main main board. spent, I think, uh, two years, maybe one and a half years, developing their beliefs before they even invested. And they spent a lot of money on that, and that's what they did. And they had a very good board as That well. was part of being a very good board. Boards here, no, yeah, yeah. We'll get a consultant to write down what our beliefs are. Thanks. What's next? And so they never really believe the beliefs, and to, and we know that that's a critical thing for good investment to have those and to understand them. So they tend not to ask those questions.
0: Can can I ask? Yeah. A can I ask a bit more specifically around sort of the board makeup? Around so you talk about investment beliefs and diversity there. If you look at most of the makeup of boards of the Australian super funds, there most of the people are Australian. They've been through the Australian education system. They've worked in Australia. Some have worked a little bit overseas, but do we actually need to maybe broaden out those boards and and really have? people from different parts of the world? Because, you know, if you speak to someone in France about their investment philosophy um, and their view of the world, it's going to be very different to someone who sits in the US, someone who sits in Hong Kong, someone who sits in Australia. Is that part of maybe one of the things that we should be looking at in terms of building diversity? Definitely,
1: definitely that. I, I'd take it further. It's different mental models. Mm-hmm. If, you know, that, that's Charlie Munger has always said that uh, 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 Buffett's uh, – Buffett's partner. As always said, the most important thing to have in investing are different mental models, to have different ways of looking at, different thing, at the same thing. And most of us, of course, and, and that's true of, as I say, most of us have been trained uh, to think of things in one way and find it not only very hard to think in another way, but also very easy to shut down anyone else who does think in different ways. And yet that is the absolute key. It's, it's diverse, a diversity of mental models. But boards, by their very nature, or you hear it from the super funds all the time and from normal companies, what we want, we've got harmony, we have a harmonious board. Well, that probably indicates it's the wrong board. You know, it's the same with democracy. You, you see... You see, uh, Scomo has got intellectual content of a used house brick, and he's saying how we want quiet Australians. We don't want these Australians out there demonstrating. We want quiet Australians. A good democracy, a healthy democracy, should be filled with noisy dissent. If it's not filled with noisy dissent, it's not doing its job. And to an extent, that's true about investment for the same reason and the reason is the massive uncertainty that governments are dealing with and the people are dealing with and that boards and super funds are dealing with. And you need that those different mental models, and they're hard to get. That means you've got to appoint people to boards who don't fit, and that's the last thing they want, because mm-hmm. then you become the board asshole. You've got to have people who don't fit and who are encouraged not to fit and who are recognized for having those different views and can learn how to try to influence people. And that is uh, anathema to most boards probably around the world. And One of the ways you get that, what you're saying is true, is you get it by being broader and being educated somewhere else and so on. And, uh, but that, it's, a, it's a hard thing to do. You know, it's a very hard thing to do, particularly when there is a, a very strong individual. Now, I speak from experience of Jeremy Grant. Uh, he encouraged different views, but he really was, uh, his intellect on investment was second to none. And he was a great debater, so he had very strong arguments against you and in favor of his own view. That, that's a very hard thing to do. Uh, you know, often wrong, but never in doubt. It's that sort of thing. But That's what you've got to do. That's the. Way. But you don't have to do that if it's a, a relative game. If all you're worried about is doing what everyone else is doing, you don't have to do that. There was a there was a balance fund in the UK some time ago that did the following. They took uh, the asset allocations of all the. All the funds, all the balance funds that were reported every month, they only got that a month in arrears. Uh, They then uh, projected uh, what they thought the fund had done, uh, how they might have changed their asset allocation from that previous month to now, which wasn't hard to do given what the markets have done, and then they averaged that, and that was the asset allocation they'd take for the next month. And that worked pretty well. So if you're going to be worried about relative performance, do that or just buy an index fund. That'll keep you sort of in the top half or something. Mm-hmm. And then you avoid all of this stuff. But that that's that's wandering away from what boards should be doing. The key, I think, is what Charlie Munger said. And all the great investors say the same thing, that you need different ways of looking at things. Mm-hmm. One. One of the things we the, going back to to what we did at GMO of asking how could we be wrong, that that's a key thing you've got and that, that's a key thing to do. But it's painful to do that, because there'll always be ways you can be wrong. And somehow in investing, you have to have knowing that there is a high probability that you're wrong, you still have to make take decisions and sometimes very big positions. And that requires not only, that requires a certain temperament. And I think, I don't think many people on the boards or many people in the world have the sort of temperament that can deal with that and make make tough decisions in the face of uncertainty. <coughs> and that's what we want governments to do. And, and then, of course, you know what happens when they get it wrong. They get abused for it. That's part of the reason, going back to this relative thing, it's part of the reason why governments and people in government very rarely say anything or want to do anything. Because we, the people, abuse them when they get it wrong. Instead of understanding, we haven't done that with uh, COVID, interestingly. COVID was an interesting case where I think Australian governments, of all tenors, actually handled that well. They accepted some of the science that was uncertain in itself, and they made some tough decisions, some of which were right and some of which turned out to be wrong. But that was very much like investing. And they did it well, so you can do it.
0: One of the questions that comes you know, to mind when you sort of talk about these sort of broader issues that are inherent in the system is how do we actually instill courage into decision makers? You know, And it's not just the board, but even some of the investment professionals yeah, as well.
1: very much. Well, and how do we do it in society and in government? You know, how many people have have that sort of courage or are willing to to stand out and take the risk of being wrong and alone? Because that's as Keynes understood eighty years ago, that's the big risk in investing of being wrong and alone. if you're, If you're wrong with everyone else, you tend to get the comments there are you, uh, that's all right well you know everyone was in the same boat obviously you couldn't do it if you're right and alone you get a little lecture that you got away with it this time but don't do it again and so that lack of courage is you're right it's it's there everywhere it's there in it seems maybe it's intrinsic to a commute a community we are after all herd animals we do like being the same as others we do want to conform. You look at little kids and you can see the, the strength of it. And there's a great strength in that sort of conformity because it keeps the community together. On the other hand, if that's all that we did, we'd never advance. The, the classic sort of faux, faux model is going back 200,000 years ago. We're, we've got a tribe running through the, the, uh, the felts of Africa, and we've gone on this path every time. This is to get some food. We've always gone in, always come back, and it's been okay. And one of the members says, why don't we try something new? Go that way. And uh, the guy who does that, on the one hand, runs a big risk of being chomped by say the toothed tiger. On the other hand, he, might also, he or she might also find a new and better way around. And that, in a way, has to be rare. If everyone did that, there'd be no community, there'd be no herd, there wouldn't be the strength of the of the community. So, in a way, those sort of courageous people will always be small in number. And that's fine, but you've got to find them and you've got to give them the opportunity. Uh, and that is the challenge. That's really hard. And I, it's not just investing, it's... it's it's probably true in football games. Well, we know it is. The the coaches who try different things usually get abused. They may not work and they get abused for it and they pull back and do what everyone else is doing.
0: And you can't have five it's, strikers it's, or five goal kickers. You, yeah, you, yeah, exactly to, that.
1: It, it's true in art. You know, the, the impressionists who started uh, impressionistic art in Paris in the 1860s where they had that, Amazing ability to take a piece, a bit of paint on a on a on a bit of canvas, and make it look like there was water uh, shimmering in the sunlight with a with a bit of a bit of paint. I, mean, I still find that staggering that anyone could do that. And they changed the way art was. Uh, art was traditional. It usually had a religious element, and there were traditional things you could do. And these guys. Uh, Monet and Monet and the others, they they changed the way art was done. But, boy, did they have to take courage to do that. They weren't allowed to show in normal places. They were dismissed as being heretics, as this isn't art, which is the usual thing to say. Uh, it, uh, uh, they had to do it by themselves and live with that. They didn't make money out of it. Think of Vincent van Gogh and others. He was a bit late to it. So even in art and music, uh, it's it's all the same, and and I think that that sort of mock sociological reason I gave has got a lot of a lot of truth to it. That we are, we do get comfort from the herd, uh, we do get a lot of strength from the community. We are social animals. We cooperate. I uh, you know the neoliberals don't want to know that, but we are as competitive as we are cooperative. And even there, it is hard to be different. It, it takes a certain temperament. Jeremy Grantham was that way, and the, the, the concern that we all had and he had was, is he doing something, say, an investment strategy that's different to everyone else's? Is he doing it partly because he likes being different, that he gets a bit of a buzz out of being standing alone by himself? If that's why you're doing it, that's the wrong risk. Mm-hmm. So the psychology of investors plays a big role. And, again, boards don't seem to be interested in that. I
0: can I, can I come back to – I'd like to come back to one final sort of question that ties up yeah. a whole lot of this herding and, and courage and so forth. And it, it applies to ESG and climate change um, because it feels that there's a bit of a cult, a herd that's within that space – um, and it's really, you know, becoming this big part of superannuation. Every fund is yeah. waving the flag of it. Yeah. I wanted to get your yeah. backdrop in terms of is that really, you know, when you think about a fiduciary responsibility and the role of funds, and then their duty to to sort of manage climate change and ESG. I really wanted to sort of get your feeling because it comes a lot in terms of courage managing a herd. Um, what you know, what's the role of super, and what is the yeah, the market issue here as well. So if you could bring that together.
1: Yeah, the, on the negative side, there's no doubt that this industry, in, in investment industry uh, <coughs> is very fashion conscious. It gets driven by fads and fashions. If you look back at the history uh, since I've been in it, which was sort of the late 80s, uh, there are fads and fashions that sweep through the industry like any other industry, I guess, uh, and this is certainly there's no doubt this is one of the fashions that everyone has to do. And again, it's the it's the relative stuff. If the super fund down the road's doing it, uh, well, I've got to do it. Now, having said that, there are some that's the that's the sort of superficial response. But there are deeper and more meaningful issues there involved. Uh, and I'm sort of in I'm in two minds about it. I think I one of the things I do respect is the sole purpose test and the sole purpose test says very clearly that as a uh, as a trust as a fiduciary you've only got one purpose and that is the financial uh, results for the members that's it maybe that should be changed a bit uh, I don't know and so that, for a while, that concerned me that it allowed the funds to do all sorts of things that weren't really in the members' best interest. Uh, when I was at Sir Sun Super, and that was some time ago, uh, we had an ESG fund and no one wanted. Now, maybe that's changed a bit, but there's a bigger issue. And the bigger issue is climate change, climate crisis, is uh, unless you're Donald Trump. Or a Tony Abbott, or some of those ideological people. Climate crisis is the biggest crisis we face, and it's been obvious for 20 years. And we have not; our leaders have not shown courage. Uh, Rudd did. He said it's the biggest uh, moral issue for the for of the generation. It is, and then as soon as there was a bit of political pressure, he went to water so there's no question this is something that can destroy our society it's already doing destroying our societies the way to solve that problem is coordinated global government action there is no other way of solving it. that's what it has to be done Uh, well it's taking too long to do it but maybe we are getting super funds to vote one way or another and it's never clear what they're doing is is digging at the edges. It makes them feel good, but it's not really attacking the problem. And it may well have the effect of uh, the well, the human effect, like turning lights off. All right, you feel good, but maybe by feeling good for doing something small, it takes you away from doing the really important things. Because hell, i you know I've done that. I've, I segregate my rubbish now. I, I don't waste things. Well, that's not the answer. The answer has to be coordinated global government uh, solutions. By doing what the funds are doing, they are making it easier for governments to say, "Well, look, the the private sector's dealing with it." And in the in the current climate, the ideologically driven right wing wants any excuse they can find to reduce government and to reduce government involvement and government action, anything they can find. And this gives them an opportunity to say, well, it's not our issue, we'll let the market decide. That is a real problem there. And governments are doing that all the time. That's part of the privatizing. I personally believe in having public assets. I believe in having a strong and large government not a small one, it's got to be good, of course, and to tackle questions like this. You you know, there was a case recently where one of the big industry funds was asked how they voted voted in favour of some management proposal that uh, various ESG bodies had said they should have voted against, and they voted in favour of it. And they were asked about it, and they said, oh, we believe in engagement. Now, Really? You're going to go to BHP and you're going to engage with them and that's going to have an effect? Come on, you own, point, you own two basis points of the company? There's nothing there. So it's got its problems. On the other hand, there is very clearly, when it comes to the risks, very clearly there are risks involved and therefore uh, funds have a an obligation to worry about these risks. In, the, in America now, if you have a... If you have a house near the water uh, you will struggle to find a 30-year loan because then uh, there's a real risk that's happening right now as we've seen so funds certainly have a, res- a responsibility to do that but that's doing it within the context of the sole purpose test it does raise the bigger issue and the bigger issue is uh, about about the uh, the whole economy what do you believe in the market driven economy. And if you do, do you take do you take Friedman's view that the sole purpose of a company, of a corporation, is to make legal profits? That was his view. That is so wrong on so many grounds, and yet it's so believed, particularly on the right, it's wrong for one reason that as a director of a company, legally my responsibility is to the company. End of story, not to the shareholders to the company, and it's left vaguely like that. Does that include the employees? I would hope so. Does it include the community? I would hope so. Does it include the bondholders? I would hope so. That That's the change that's going on right now, and I hope we win that change and get away from this narrow, ideological, market-driven nonsense. There's even the Chief Justice of the Delaware Supreme Court uh, has come out in favour of a broader view, we call it stakeholder capitalism if you like, a broader view of what your responsibility as a director and as a company is. And once that gets more accepted, then we got then the problem gets even murk, even murkier than it is now.
0: All right, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today.
1: Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.